One of the commentaries that I've been reading as we're studying 1 Corinthians was written by a man named Leon Morris. And let me read you something that he said about chapter 4. The Corinthian emphasis on the teachers meant that they were thinking too highly of men. Paul does not want them to take pride in one man over against another. There is a sense in which Christians may legitimately rejoice in the leadership given by their spiritual men, but when they find themselves so much in favor of one leader that they are against another, they have overstepped the bounds. This is the evil of partisanship. End quote. And that was the problem. That was the problem. That's what Paul has made clear was going on in Corinth. It was pride that was leading to division in this church in Corinth. And Paul has been correcting it for four chapters. These first four chapters of his letter. And in chapter 4, where we find today's text, Paul is making clear to the Corinthians how they should view and respond to their leaders. He's made it very clear who their leaders are not. He's made it very clear how they should not respond to their leaders. But now in chapter 4, as he wraps up his correction of their division, he's clarifying how they should view their leaders and how they should respond to their leaders. And so last week, we looked at the first five verses of chapter 4 where we saw the regarding, the requirement, the judgment, and the reward of a minister. And now today, Paul explains that he and these other leaders are examples. One of the purposes that they serve from God is that they are examples for us to learn by. Paul and the apostles and other godly men and other godly leaders then and today are examples for us as Christians, for them and for us to learn by. I've always said that Christians learn in two ways, or Christians grow in two ways, or Christians mature in two ways, through instruction and imitation. It's how God has built us. It's how He's wired us. That this is how we grow through instruction, listening to what other people say, and through imitation, which is watching how other people live. And so through instruction and through imitation, we might grow as Christians. So today, I believe God will call us and call the Corinthians to imitate, to watch how Paul and the apostles were living, and it will be contrasted sharply and distinctly with how the Corinthians were living. That's where we're headed today, and we're headed there today in God's Word, and be reminded as always how big a deal it is when we open God's Word together. Not just when we read God's Word together or apart. Not just when we study God's Word on our own. But what a big deal it is. And in addition to all that, when we come together as God's people and His Holy Spirit comes and dwells among us in a unique way and in a special way and blesses the preaching of His Word. And so wherever and whenever God's Word is faithfully preached, then we learn who we are. We learn who God is. We learn how we can be saved from sin. And there is nothing more important for each of us to know. And it will change us forever. Which is why we pray before every sermon. So will you please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, as we all listen to this sermon, we pray that you would affect us, that you would change us, change our hearts and change our minds. 
and change our wills, that we would not just hear your word, that we would not just listen to your word, but that we would do what your word calls us to do. And that as Christians, we would do that out of gratitude. We are thankful and grateful that you have loved us in spite of us. And we ask that you would help us now to obey you and honor you the way we should and the way you deserve. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own your own Bible, of course, you may look at some of those Bibles and say, I'd rather not take this home. I was looking at one this week and thinking we should probably replace some of those. But if you'd like to take it with you, you can. And if you're following along in one of those Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 619. In our first verse today, verse 6, Paul makes clear the lesson to be learned. There's a lesson to be learned in this text, and he makes it clear. See if you can hear it. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul begins in that verse by saying he had applied all these things to himself and Apollos for the benefit or for the good of the Corinthians. All these things could refer to all the things that Paul has written in this letter. But more than likely, all these things refers to what Paul has just said in the previous verses. And that's what he has applied. In those verses 1 through 5, again, Paul had talked about the regarding and the requirement and the judgment and the reward of ministers. He made this clear that Paul was, that Apollos was, that other ministers were faithful servants and stewards of the mysteries of God who would one day receive their commendation from God. That's what he had just said in verses 1 through 5. And Paul and Apollos believed that. He didn't just say it. He really believed that and they lived it out. We are servants and stewards of God. We are to be faithful with the Word of God. We're not living for a reward now. We're living for a commendation then when Jesus comes back. So we're free. We don't need or require anything from those we are teaching. We're doing this for God and for His glory and for your good. Paul believed that and he had, we're told here, applied these things to his own life. They were living it out in front of the Corinthians for their good. They believed this and applied it and were living it out. Again, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. By us. In other words, Paul and Apollos, and I think he has in mind all other faithful ministers, are living illustrations. That's the idea. Paul and Apollos and faithful ministers are living illustrations, living examples for the Corinthians to, what does Paul say? Learn by. Again, we learn and grow and mature through imitation. Through watching how other Christians apply the Word of God. How they live these things out. Let's finish the verse. Still in verse 6 here. 
Look at the second half of verse 6. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So what is, you see it there, what is the lesson to be learned? There's the lesson to be learned from Paul and faithful leaders and their life and how they apply truth. Do not go beyond what is written. That's the lesson he wants the Corinthians to learn by listening to Paul and watching Paul. That you do not go beyond what is written. Literally, literally this says something closer to that you may learn by us the not beyond what is written. That's what it says literally. That you may learn by us the not beyond what is written. And that phrase, is written, is the phrase that Paul uses in all of his letters anytime he's quoting Scripture. Is written refers to the Word of God. He's already used that phrase five times in this letter, quoting five different texts from the Old Testament. So Paul is saying this, do not go beyond God's Word. That's what that means. For them and for us. The lesson, do not go beyond what is written, means do not go beyond the Word of God. It's not the Word of God plus anything else. Plus the Word of anyone else. Anyone else's words that you value must be standing on the Word of God. And they must just be explaining, exegeting, exegeting, expositing the Word of God and nothing else because we are not to go beyond the Word of God. The Reformers in the 16th century, they had several sayings or mantras and one of them was sola scriptura, which means in Latin, which means the Bible alone. Scripture alone, this alone, the Bible alone is the Word of God. If it's not in here, it's not the Word of God. If you read it somewhere else, it's not the Word of God. If you saw it in a vision, it's not the Word of God. If you heard it in a dream, it's not the Word of God. Whatever all that is. It's not the Word of God. And we must not go beyond what is written. This alone is the Word of God. The Word of God is authoritative, is what this means. The Word of God is authoritative, and I submit myself to it. And I submit my life to it. I come underneath God's Word. And how I see myself and how I see the world and how I see life, everything is through the lens of Scripture. Sola Scriptura. And so Paul is saying the lesson to be learned by our lives is do not, whatever you do, do not go beyond what is written. Do not be go beyond the Word of God. Think about the implications of that. The implications of that. In my thoughts. In my words. In my desires. In my actions. In my decisions. In my goals. In my plans. Everything is to be informed by the Word of God. Everything in my life is to be shaped by the Word of God. Every decision I make, every plan I make, every goal I have is in submission to the truth of God's Word. And frankly, and Paul has made this clear, you will end up saying and doing many things that will appear foolish. The world called Paul a fool. 
They said what he believed was foolish. They said everything he did is folly. And what was he doing? He was very careful not to go beyond what is written. Why would it be any different for us? Why would it be any different for us? If we don't appear foolish to people at times, if we don't appear foolish to family members at times, if we don't appear foolish to our neighbors at times, if we don't appear foolish to people in our workplace at times, maybe we're going beyond what is written in the Word of God. So many implications. He'll draw many of them out in this letter. But he makes it clear here that what he has said and now the example of his life, which he's going to draw out here in our text, the lesson to be learned is do not go beyond what is written. And then the very end of the verse, there, there is something to avoid by not going beyond what is written. And here it is, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, and here is what Paul is saying, going beyond what is written results in being puffed up in favor of one against another. Going beyond what is written will result in pride. Paul uses this phrase puffed up six times in this letter. Six times in this letter it will be translated as the word arrogant in other places. And this was the problem in Corinth. They were arrogant, puffed up, and boasting. Or to put it another way, they were proud. They thought highly of themselves and they thought lowly of others. So, according to verse 6, the lesson to be learned for them, for us, was not to go beyond what is written. And that lesson could be learned through the example of the apostles who are living illustrations for the Corinthians. Which is why now, in the following verses, Paul contrasts the pride of the Corinthians and the humility of the apostles. These are the examples that he's going to set forth. One good, one bad. And through the example of the apostles, we learn not to go beyond the Word of God, that we might not end up then like the Corinthians, proud. So let's look first at the pride of the Corinthians. Verses 7 and 8 is the pride of the Corinthians, and then we'll see verses 9 through 13 is the humility of the apostles. So verse 6 told us the lesson to be learned, and now we're going to look at these two examples. First, in verses 7 through 8, the pride of the Corinthians. And Paul exposes their pride by basically holding up a mirror. You'll see this is, he's going to throw the Corinthians' own words back at them. He's going to say things about them that he has heard them say about themselves. So he holds up a mirror and he begins by asking three questions. And they're not real questions. They're rhetorical questions. Right? A rhetorical question is not a real question. You're not sincerely looking for information. You're making a point. It's when the wife asks her husband, are you going to wear that? That's a rhetorical question. She's not really curious because she knows she's not going to let him leave wearing that. It's a statement, and the statement is, I can't believe you put that on. <laughs> so there's three rhetorical questions here. Look at verse 7, question 1. For who sees anything different in you? For who sees anything different in you? This verse means, who can put a difference between you and anyone else? Or this verse means who can regard you as superior? The Corinthians believed they were spiritually superior. 
they saw themselves as distinct and unique and different from everyone else. One writer says they were desirous of distinction. We live in a day where people are desirous of distinction. At least we say we are. Everybody's unique. Everybody's different. There's no one like me. Everyone special. But Paul confronts that attitude here and says, who says? Who says there's anything superior about you to anyone else? Who says there's anything distinct about you, Corinthians, than anyone else? Who, who says that there is anything special about you, Corinthians, compared to anyone else? You say that about yourself, but he asks them the question, who sees anybody else? Who sees anything different in you? And Paul's implied answer is obviously no one. No one regards you as superior to anyone else. No one sees you as distinct and different than anyone else. You are not, he's telling them, special compared to others. Hey, often the code language for I'm different and I'm unique and I'm special is I'm better. I'm better. When someone is special, we mean they're, they're better, not worse. And we might, and apparently the Corinthians did, say things like, everyone is special. Listen, you're not special. You're not special. And in fact, if everyone was special, then no one's special. By saying you're special, you're saying other people are unspecial. So who are they? Who's not special? None of us. None of us are special. Now that doesn't mean that we're not valuable. That doesn't mean that we're not loved. That doesn't mean that we're not image bearers of God. That's where we derive Christians, I hope you know that. That is where we derive our value. That we are created in the image of God. And every single human being is created in the image of God. So you're not valuable or worthy of love or affection because you're special, but because you are an image bearer of God. So you're not special. You're not better than anyone else. There's no high ground that you can claim we're not. And Paul has to say that to the Corinthians. You're not special. You're not superior to anyone else. You're not one of a kind. You actually all have starking similarities in that you're sinful. With sinful hearts whose natural desire is to go astray and to rebel and to go away from God. So the answer to his question is no one. Question two. What do you have that you did not receive? This is, this is a very important question. And this is one that we will come back to. This verse is the key verse of the text. This theme in this verse is the central theme of this text. So we will come back to verse 7. But he asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And Paul's implied answer here is nothing. So who sees anything different in any of you? And the answer is no one. And what do you have right now? Think of all that you have that you have not received. And the implied answer is nothing. He's taking the legs out. So you are not superior. And everything you have, you received. And based on those answers, 
Paul asks his third question. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast? Why are you arrogant? Why are you puffed up? Why are you proud? Why do you exalt yourselves? Why? The gifts you have, the the talents you have, the opportunities, the knowledge, the intelligence, the theology, the teachers, the teaching. You have all these things because you received them. Not because you deserve them. Not because you merited them. Not because you did something to warrant them, not because you worked for them, but ultimately, ultimately, you have these things because you have received them. James 1.17 Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And here's what John the baptizer said in John 3.27 A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You and I cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So with these questions, Paul rebukes the pride of the Corinthians. You can hear him. Repeating these things back to them in the form of questions. Who says? Who says you're distinct and special and different, superior than anyone else? What about all these things that you have that you boast about and brag about? Why do you have those things? Do you have any of them because you did not receive them? Or did you receive every one of them? Okay, if you did receive all of them, then why the problem? That's the question. Why are you boasting? Why are you divisive? Why are you proud? Why are you arrogant, Corinthians? Why are you, Veritas Church, in your own heart, proud? Why are you arrogant? Why do you see yourself as better or superior than someone else? Why do you take pride in who you are and what you know and what you've accomplished? Haven't you received it all from God? It's a rebuke to pride. Now next in verse 8, and this is sort of shocking, Paul ridicules them. We might say he makes fun of them, or he shames them, or he mocks them. And he's going to do it through biting sarcasm. God does this too, by the way. And it shocks us when he does it. He did it to Job. God is sarcastic sometimes. Says things that he doesn't actually believe. Says things that he doesn't actually mean. To shock people out of complacency. It's what Paul is doing here with the Corinthians. Same thing. So he's going to affirm things that the Corinthians said about themselves. This isn't question form now, it's statements. He's going, to, he's going to affirm things that the Corinthians said about themselves, but he's going to do it totally sarcastically. Listen, here's verse 8. Already you have all you want, and I'm going to try to do it with the tone, a sarcastic tone. I, I, he's being sarcastic. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. That's sarcasm. He doesn't really mean that already they have everything that they want or need. He doesn't really mean that they're rich. He doesn't really mean that they are kings. He doesn't really mean that, he, that they, if they were kings, he'd gladly serve alongside them and, and reap the reward and the benefit that they have because of their righteousness and their good works and their good deeds. Now just to note, this is not what he is saying about them. This is not contentment. You could read this and they they could be thinking or saying, we have all we want in Christ. But that's not, that'll be clear. That's not what they mean. They're not saying we are rich 
in Christ, that, that would not be rebuked by Paul. That would be a good thing. That would be contentment. But this is actually complacency. Contentment and complacency. Very different. Very different. Contentment is rooted in God's sovereignty. Complacency is rooted in pride. Contentment leads to righteousness. Complacency leads to laziness. So this is the same kind of thing, this, this rich, this everything we want of the Corinthians. It's the same thing we see in Revelation chapter 3. Let me read you verses 15 through 17. There are these churches and there are these letters being written to these churches. And this one is a portion of the letter to Laodicea. And I want you to hear the similarity between these words here and the way the Corinthians talked about themselves. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that is a terrible thing for Jesus to say about you. If you're that church, that is a terrible thing to hear Jesus say. That something needs to change or you are like lukewarm water in my mouth that I am going to spit out. So the next verse, what was it? What was, the, what was the issue? What did that lukewarmness, how did that manifest itself? How did they talk in Laodicea? Well, listen, verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the truth of who the Corinthians were. That's the truth of who every Christian is. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We'll see, that's who, that's who Paul was. In desperate need of God. Definitely had things that he wanted and needed. Definitely was not spiritually rich yet. Definitely was not reigning as a king yet. We'll see that in the very next set of verses. And that is who we are. That is who we are. So whatever this proud talking is, and we'll see, we do not want to do this. We want to understand that spiritually we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the idea there is we are a needy people. We are a desperate people, and we need God to care for us, and we need God to save us, and we need God to keep us, and we need God. We need, 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 need God. We don't need anything else, actually, but we need God. Totally dependent on Him every second of every day. And so we must not talk like this. Paul is saying, Sarcastically, already you know it all. Already you have it all. Already, we might say it this way, you have arrived. He's clapping, right? He's doing the Nancy Pelosi clap for them. <laughs> You've arrived. Good for you. You're so amazing. He's being sarcastic with them. You're so amazing. You're so wonderful. I mean, you don't have any, you don't want anything anymore spiritually. You don't need anything spiritually. You, you've arrived. You, you have all the knowledge that you need. I wish, I wish I could be in the position that you're in. They were not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is a good thing according to Matthew 5, 6, but they weren't. We're not hungry. We're not thirsty. We have everything that we want. Paul says this, without us, you have become kings. And when he says without us, that does not mean without our help. It means without our company. In other words, Paul is saying sarcastically that you have achieved something that even we haven't. I mean, you're kings without us. We're not there. Maybe we will be someday. If we, once we're as great as you, 
are Corinthians. Paul knows he hasn't arrived. Paul knows he doesn't know it all. Paul knows how needy and dependent he is. He says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So in these verses, 7 and 8, Paul has held up a mirror to the Corinthians and the image is pretty awful. It sounds gross, doesn't it? He starts saying their words back to them and their beliefs back to them. On display is their puffed up, arrogant, divisive, self-congratulatory, boastful triumphalism. I mean, you really, until these verses, you might not know how ugly the sin was in Corinth until these verses. That's how I felt. Though I didn't realize it was that bad. They're thinking like that. They're acting like that. They're talking that way. They're boasting. They're this proud. It's on full display in these verses. So this is the depth of the pride in Corinth. And it was owing, remember, to them going beyond what is written. They need to not go beyond what is written. That they may not get puffed up in favor of one against another. Now verses 9 through 13. He moves from the pride of the Corinthians and he contrasts it with the humility of the apostles. And We won't spend as much time on this as we did on the text about the Corinthians. But verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, I want you to see something here. Exhibited is one word. And spectacle is another word. God has exhibited us. Another way of saying that is God has put us on display. He's referring to himself and Apollos and I assume the apostles and, and maybe even other faithful ministers. God has exhibited us. He has put us on display. He has made us, another word showing that they're being exhibited, displayed. He has made us a spectacle. God has, the beginning of verse 9, God has exhibited us. God has made us a spectacle. God is in charge of all this. And why? Back to verse 6, that you may learn by us. So make that connection between verse 9 and verse 6. They are the example, not the Corinthians. But Paul, Apollos, the apostles, faithful ministers that will now be described this is the example to follow. This is the display that God is putting out there. You see the difference. The Corinthians exhibited themselves. And God exhibited Paul. The Corinthians were saying, look at us. And God was saying, look at Paul. The Corinthians pointed to themselves, but God pointed to the apostles. The Corinthians were proud and arrogant and puffed up. They were self-exalting and self-congratulatory. They were not and are not the example to follow. Paul is. And so he says, God has exhibited us. God has made us a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. And he says this, what kind of spectacle? What kind of exhibit? 
Not the exhibit that I want to see. To be honest. In my flesh, in my sinful nature, okay, God, show, give the exhibit. What's the display? What's the example to follow? And this is not what I want it to look like. What does he compare it to? We are like men sentenced to death. That's hard. Like men sentenced to death, which probably refers to, you could read more about this in an ESV study Bible, probably refers to the Roman triumphal procession in which captured enemy soldiers were paraded through the streets before being publicly executed. So that's quite a contrast. Corinthians, you're the kings out in front of the procession. But the real example is the apostles. We're being exhibited by God. We're being made a spectacle. And we are like men sentenced to death. We're not the kings out in front. We're those chained and being dragged after the victory at the end of the procession. Who will be, in a matter of minutes, thrown into the middle of the Colosseum. While everyone takes a seat and looks on. And the gates open. And the hungry beasts are released. To devour the Christians. That's the kind of thing that was happening. That's the kind of thing that was taking place. That's the kind of fate. That will come to 11 of the 12 disciples. They were a spectacle. Like men sentenced to death. So we move on to Paul's description of himself and the other apostles and ministers. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. More ridicule, more sarcasm. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Verse 11, to the present hour, we Hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. This is not a good picture. Nobody, nobody would want this. Nobody would desire this, including Paul. This isn't what Paul wanted. This isn't what Paul desires. This isn't what he thought about as a kid. This isn't what he dreamed of as a young man. Oh, to be buffeted and homeless and no clothes. When it says that he was poorly dressed. The idea is that their clothes are ripped off their bodies. Like as people are trying to kill them and capture them or arrest them. We don't have but the clothes on our back and they're in bad shape. They were homeless because most of them were fugitives. They had to go from town to town. They had to, they had to minister in secret. They had to hide. They were often hungry and thirsty. Paul gives more details about his life and. 2 Corinthians 11.24 and following. Listen to this resume of Paul. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. By the way, one of those usually killed a person. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Everywhere, in other words. It's dangerous for him everywhere. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What a contrast that is to the rich, satisfied kings in Corinth. He says that's not the example. 
you get there going beyond what is written. God has made us an exhibit. God has made us the spectacle. God has made us the example. So many implications there. But a Christian should certainly never feel slighted when they suffer. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. And maybe most importantly, we should not feel unloved when we suffer. See the suffering of Paul. I bet you don't doubt that God loved Paul. And yet it's easy for us, isn't it? When we suffer on a much smaller scale, usually to doubt God's love and affection and favor. But so many good and lasting purposes that God brings through his people suffering. The good that a Christian suffering brings to other people, yes, but the good that a Christian suffering brings to a Christian. The privilege, the Bible calls it, to taste something of what Christ suffered for you, that you may know how great his love for you is. When you suffer, know that Jesus suffered a million times that and out of love for you and be encouraged and comforted. We could go on and on. That's not actually the point of Paul's text. Verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands, which was despised by many Greeks. And here is how they responded to suffering. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. He's not boasting and bragging. Paul balances this all over the place with what a wretched sinner he knew he was. But this is the truth. This is the example of his life put on display here. And now finally, this description at the end of verse 13. If you're not looking, look now at the end of verse 13. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. It's not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. This is the humility of Paul. This is how Paul sees himself. Scum. Let me tell you what that means literally. It literally means things removed as the result of cleaning all around. Paul says, I'm like that. I'm like that. Things removed as the result of cleaning all around. And he says refuse. We're like the refuse of the world. Literally, that means that which is wiped off by rubbing all around. That's what these things literally mean. The scum that you scrape off the pot. The refuse that is gathered at the very bottom of the garbage bag. Paul's saying, here's the exhibit. Here's the spectacle. Just a quick note. I felt this might be important. This is not a pity party by Paul. Not a pity party. This is not Paul looking for a pat on the back. He will clarify that in the next text, actually, which we'll look at soon. Remember, Paul is a servant of Christ and he is not living for commendation or sympathy from the Corinthians now, but commendation from God on the last day. We might rattle off ways that we suffered and sinfully be looking for sympathy. That's not Paul's motive here. He's doing this to help the Corinthians. We're like men sentenced to death, fools, weak, disrespected, hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, scum, of the world, refuse of the world, yet blessing others, yet enduring all of this, yet entreating or praying for others, even our enemies. So in conclusion, he's laid these two examples, these two exhibits before us. Remember 
What is the lesson to be learned? He made it clear at the very beginning. The lesson to be learned is do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond the word of God. Do not go beyond the truth of God's word and namely. Verse seven. Namely, verse seven. This is where the pride came in. This is where it went sideways for the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We must not go beyond this. Ask yourself. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Nothing. Talents, gifts, Family, knowledge, theology, relationships, opportunity. Everything you have received has been from God. Everything. What's left then to take pride in? Nothing. What's left to, to boast in or boast about? Nothing. What's left then to be arrogant over? Nothing. What's left then to be proud and divisive in a church over like they were in Corinth? Nothing. What's left to brag about? Nothing. There's nothing for a Christian to brag about. There's nothing for a Christian to boast about. There's nothing for a Christian to be arrogant about. It's why pride does not belong in the life of a Christian. It doesn't fit. It, it doesn't make sense. You have to go beyond what is written in order to be proud. You have to think that there's something in your life that you have because you deserved it or you earned it or you worked for it instead of understanding that, well, you might have worked. And of course, there are many things that you have and you've done something and you may have gifts and talents and you've Encourage those and you've worked at it and you've practiced and you've grown and you've become better. But make no mistake, even that which you have done and even that which you have done to success or that which you have done faithfully, you have only done to success or you have only done faithfully because it is God and His sovereign hand that is over you and behind you and beneath you and in front of you. And so there's nothing for you to boast in. Now, here's the one place, though, where Christians can get proud and Christians can brag and Christians can boast. So be careful. And it is, I get that, that everything I have is from God, that He is sovereign over my life and He is directing my life and all things for my good and for His glory and the good and the bad. And I get all of that. But some Christians have this Dirty little belief underneath all that. And it was this, that I got the ball rolling with my faith. In other words, well, everything I have received is a gift from God. But we might think, but of course, that doesn't apply to my faith. I had free will. Every human being does. And I would actually say that's true, but how we understand that is very important. Even your faith, Christian, was a gift from God. 
It is all of grace that you are a Christian today. And if you think that the difference between you and the person next to you that didn't say yes to Jesus at that concert is you. Then you're going to be proud. Then you're going to have something to boast in. You're going to have something to brag about. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, 4. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do not go beyond what is written. Everything you have, you have received. It is all the sovereign gift of God. And this includes everything. Jonathan Edwards said rightly, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) So we shouldn't say that we didn't play a part. (laughs) Hold on there. I did play a part. I did do something. I was a sinner. Sinful. In need of. Of God's salvation. So that means that. Christian. That means that God did not start loving you. When you became a Christian. I mean if you think you got the whole thing rolling. And it was all up in the air. Until you said yes to Jesus. Then I guess that's what you're going to think. But it's way way better than that. It's much more glorious than that. That means that in eternity past, God started loving you. I'm not even sure how far back that is. It's like forever God loved you. Before, for sure we know this, before God said, let there be light, He had set His affection on you. And knew you. And loved you. And had great plans for your life. And had determined every moment of every day. And then he created. And thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And then you were born. You were born in the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or the 40s. I want to be careful here. 30s maybe, a few years ago. And you were born at the exact, at the exact moment that God planned for you to be born. And he had more plans. He had sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago to pay the price for your sin. Knowing that as soon as you were born, you would start doing what you do. And that is sin because you are a sinner and rebellion and running from God and away from God and going your own way and not his way and not, not, not to be reconciled to God, not to be a friend of God, not to be with God, certainly not to spend eternity with God in heaven. So he made provision and sent his son who would live the perfect life that you and I are supposed to live and that he would die The most awful death, not because he deserved it, but in the place of his people as a substitute for them. Out of love for them so that their sins could be forgiven. They could receive the righteousness of Jesus and be justified and saved and loved and accepted and adopted into God's family to live and reign with him forever. Did that 2,000 years ago and then you were born. And at some point in your life, and for those of you who are Christians, you remember maybe some of you, you remember that moment or that season when everything changed and you knew God and you hadn't before and you loved God and you hadn't before. Okay, here's what was, here's what happened. That was when God decided to open your eyes. To show you how much he loved you. 
That's when he opened your mind. That's when he softened your heart. This is the way the Bible talks about it. This is when he removed the scales from your eyes. This is when he caused you to be born again. And all of that because of 1 John 3, 1, the great love that God the Father has lavished on us. So you see, if we, if we believe something differently, if we go beyond what is written, then two terrible things happen. One is we don't really understand the depth of God's love for us. But much more importantly, God is robbed of glory. He doesn't share that with anyone. So he takes care of this thing from start to finish. From conception to completion. It's all God. It is, as Spurgeon was fond of saying in the title of one of his books, it is all of grace. So if you're here today and you are a Christian, you should be the opposite of proud then. You should be grateful. And you should be thankful that is what the Corinthians needed, and it's what you and I need. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, well, then come to Christ. Come to Christ. The call of the gospel is this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is who you are, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way... There is no way for you to be reconciled to God apart from Him. So come to Christ even today. Believe this gospel. Turn from sin and your own way. And trust Christ and rely on Christ for salvation.